Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 143, Space Health Technologies. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. I hope you tuned in to our recent series on NASA's Human Research Program. We dove into the work being done at NASA to help understand what happens to the human body in areas such as human performance, human health, radiation, medicine, and a whole lot more. We gave many examples through this series on different ways that the Human Research Program does research in these areas to get the best science possible, the latest science possible, using the latest technologies. Helping the Human Research Program solve challenges for human space exploration and preparing for deep space travel is the Translational Research Institute for Space Health. In this episode, we'll just call it Trish. Trish is helping NASA conduct research on some of the latest and greatest technologies and procedures, both to find out if it can be integrated in NASA's future missions and also to help these technologies develop for Earth benefits. Here to tell us about this organization and some of these disruptive technologies and ideas are Dorit Donneville, Ph.D., and Dr. Kristen Fobb. Dorit is the director of Trish, and Kristen is a senior innovation scientist. And both have extensive and impressive backgrounds in science and technology. So here we go. Space health technologies and the work being done at Trish to help NASA test the latest medical technologies and advances with Dorit Donneville and Kristen Fobb. I hope you enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit by search for the red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Dorit and Kristen, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure. So... Trish. I like saying Trish because it sounds like another person, but it is an organization. Dorit, why don't you tell me what Trish is and what you do? Yeah, I know. It sounds like a Texas soccer mom, right? <laughs> <laughs> driving, driving in a minivan. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to take us seriously, but that's okay because uh, they're all about having fun with the work that we do. Um, so it's the Translational Research Institute. That was the original name, but it's so generic and there's so many out there and it doesn't really tell you what the institute does. So right. when I became director, I changed the name to Translational Research Institute for Space Health which uh, is unfortunately, it was very close to being trash, but it's actually Trish now. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad you stayed away from trash. Yeah, that was me good. too, me too. Uh, we are just so happy and uh, to be a partner with NASA. We are a standalone research institute mm -hmm. that essentially functions through a cooperative agreement with NASA. We work very closely with the human research program and we're entrusted to basically uh, uh, go out there and find what NASA is not already doing uh, in terms of reducing the risks to human health and performance in deep space. So we're very Mars forward. We're very um, focused on, on the future, those mm. missions that haven't yet been scoped out. Um, our job is to connect with the, the most innovative technologies, companies, researchers all over the world, but really funding things on, on U.S. soil um, and bring them forward to NASA to take a look at to see whether they can integrate them into their current research portfolio. Hmm. Yeah, because sometimes you can sort of get caught in the regular routine of research. You're not really looking out for some of those latest and greatest technologies that might fit the needs 
uh, which we're looking for all the time. Yeah, in science, people tend to get siloed. They they tend yeah. to have a favorite hypothesis or a certain way of, of thinking about things, and and they do work that takes decades uh, to come to fruition. And and sometimes you're blind to what else is going on in the outside world. And so that's precisely why NASA needed an external organization. Uh, to go out there and look at things from a new perspective and to help them sort of realize if there's a better way of doing things. So how is Trish integrated? Because I see there's Baylor College of Medicine is sort of intertwined with all of this. What's that relationship like? Yeah, so so the cooperative agreement was given to Baylor College of Medicine, which Got is the it. lead institution. So it's a grant. It's a large grant from NASA through a cooperative agreement. Unlike contract, uh, contract though, we're very free in terms of we have a lot of autonomy. Um, but in addition to Baylor College of Medicine, we've pulled in two of the most premier technological institutes in the country, one on the East Coast, MIT, and one on the West Coast, Caltech. And so we have people embedded in those communities that are working with us. And those institutions are also mandated through the relationship with the consortium with Baylor to uh, go out there and find things for NASA and to help build this program together with us. Hmm. Okay, so it, it is. It's a even broader team than even just you guys. I it's mean, you're huge. working. You're working across the nation. It's it huge. Like. In fact, Chris and I've been working on building, uh, and and Rachel, our communication and education lead, uh, building a community. That's one of the mandates that NASA wanted is for us to build a community of experts that they can uh, NASA dip its fingers into when it has a need. Okay, so yeah, Kristen, and, tell me about this community. And, and this and this is absolutely needed because. We, we ourselves, even though we are constantly seeking disruptive technologies or paradigm shifts in how we do science, we ourselves don't know what's going on out there. And so mm. we need our, our reach to be expanded across the entire country so that we have a good sense for some of that, that really cool cutting edge science and technology that we don't know about yet, but we, we're looking for them and we want them to know that we exist because this is this is the challenge is is being able to to, to actually understand that and to, to invest in it and to implement it and then to bring it to NASA. Uh, so we ourselves are always having to, to force ourselves to not be comfortable in how we think and that we're constantly pushing ourselves to think outside the box. Well, tell me about how you think. Tell me about a little bit about your, your background and, and what you've worked on before and how that kind of translates to what you're doing now. Sure. So my background, I... I, I stumbled into radiation biology research. At first, I was very interested in cancer research, and so I was at Colorado State University uh, looking at breast cancer research, but there was an emphasis on radiation-induced breast cancer. And so I had to understand about radiation and, and, and learn about the biological damages that it does to tissue so that I can understand uh, how that connects to carcinogenesis. Uh, so when I, I was ready for my postdoc, I actually went to uh, National Cancer Institute at NCI uh, and looked at radiation mitigators, so things that can protect or to sensitize to radiation. So can, mm. can we use radiation as a tool, uh, for example, for cancer, mm. or can we find approaches to protect against radiation? Uh, at that point, I realized that um, I... I wanted to be more involved in communication and problem solving, uh, working the problem from a higher level. Um, I would talk to myself, and unfortunately, they wouldn't talk back. I wanted to to have conversations <laughs> about science. Yeah. And 
So I went into uh, the National Institute. Uh, the National um, Institute of Health has a great program for, for trainees and for fellows. Um, and they have these, these the extramural program, which is essentially how NIH funds all of the research across the country. And so I became a, a program manager looking at these, these microphysiological systems or organs on chips or tissue chips, whatever you want to call them. But they're basically these human complex in vitro models that mimic uh, the microenvironment of, a, of an organ or a tissue of interest. Uh, and because of that uh, effort that we pulled together, at the National Center for Advancing Translational Science, uh, or NCATS, um, I, I, I was pulled into pharma uh, because they wanted to look at these types of technologies on how they can use these tissue chips or microphysiological systems for drug development, uh, trying to either identify new targets or how safe is their drug going to be. Um, and because of all of that background, it, it really put me in a very unique place for, for really helping Dorit and the Trish mission on how we can use our public-private partnerships, how we can look at funding agencies, how we can look at pharmaceutical companies and industry to really drive the mission forward. What a whirlwind of a path. I have no idea how I got here, honestly. <laughs> well, I, what I like about your path is, is you're saying you, you, were, you were passionate about cancer research. And then you see, you know, through this research, you get pulled into these different areas. Next thing you know, you're working on these tiny little technologies and for drug development. Yeah. But you started all the way back here with cancer research. You just allow yourself to go with the wind. Yeah, I love and it. And now it's space. And now, now it's space. space. <laughs> actually, you know, funny enough, we actually have had uh, Lucy Lowe on the podcast to talk about. I know about, Lucy very well. Yeah, to talk about tissue chips and what a fascinating technology. So, and I guess that's, is it, was it is through tissue chips that you got involved with space health and, and the space ac applicability? It was the start. I think that's probably what piqued Dorit's okay. interest in my background, that and uh, the industry and, and government experience, uh, looking at, you know, being a part of a funding agency myself, oh, yeah. uh, just having that background. I searched high and low for just the perfect person, and here she is. <laughs> I mean, it just like, whoa. With a path like that, yeah, how yeah, can you not say, right. yes, please come join our <laughs> yes. team? So you're, you're the director at Trish. I then. am the director. So yeah. what's your background? Well, I have a very old background. I'm older, much older than Christian. <laughs> um, yeah, I also never thought I'd end up in space. Yeah. I actually was doing a lot of uh, uh, genetic engineering and, and mouse embryos and making genetic models for uh, disease diseases at Lexicon Pharmaceuticals uh, before I came to Baylor. Um, and it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity when people say, you know, come work with the space program and combine your love of science and biology and medicine and apply it in a whole new way off the planet. I know. It was like, what? <laughs> okay, let's try this for a while. And it's just turned out to be the most amazing experience and just, uh, just blows your mind the kinds of things you see and learn. It's every day is something new and delightful. Work with people like Kristen and others. It's just a joy. So what about what, what is it about the space applicability that sort of surprised you when you just oh. first started getting entered into that yeah, world? Yeah, this is a great question. Probably the most important question you're going to ask today. <laughs> because for your audience, people just don't, don't understand it until we explain it. So number one, I always say that if you can do it in space, you can do it anywhere. In other words, when I say do it, I, I mean healthcare. Healthcare, okay. <laughs> Although there was recently an article about doing it in other ways, but uh, the uh, so if you're able to keep a human healthy and thriving on the way to Mars, which is a really long trip, and bring them back safe and healthy, 
you can do it anywhere on earth, which means seniors in the home not having to go into managed care facilities. You can do it in third world nations. You can keep people healthy um, in, in remote places that they don't have access to doctors. So that's one. So we have a whole new model for, for healthcare in thinking about that mission to Mars. Wow, because there's so much there's so much autonomy. You don't have the, the doctors. You don't have the right facilities. Yet it has to be compact. So all these issues and all these problems you have to address for space flight, yes, it would it would be applicable to remote areas, to, right. to that level of autonomy. As a matter of fact, every project that's in our portfolio, we have an impact for space and an impact for here on Earth. Hmm. Uh, and a lot of that is you know, how, to, how to reach the patients uh, that, that are hard to reach, or how do you get that autonomy? How can you make this easier for people to grasp so that we all have a chance to have uh, good treatment and, and good monitoring, good diagnostics, uh, with the types of technologies that we support. And it's generally about prevention. You never want to mm. get to a point where you have a major medical event. So it's monitoring and predicting and preventing. And that's the model that should be there for healthcare because we, we, we intervene too late. By then, the outcomes are too late for healthcare. Mm. So you know who's interested in working with us are the payers, the insurance companies, because they're oh. trying to reduce the cost of healthcare. And they're wanting to move away from hospitals and a lot of, you know, expensive procedures and experts into the home and to prevent. So that's who's talking to us. And that's great for NASA because we're able to make those connections. We just don't have enough money. Like, you know, the, the budget for, for the health-related research within NASA is much smaller than the NIH. And so we oh. need somebody to come up behind us and continue to support a lot of the things that we're investing in. Yeah. Yeah, they're interested in the eat healthy now and exercise so you don't have to deal with it later. That's right. But for space flight. The second point I wanted to make about why space is such an important model for us to use here for Earth in all the applications, because people ask me all the time, why should we spend all this money on four people who are going to live, you know, um, what does that have to do with me? Yeah, we hear that a lot. Yeah, well, space is an accelerated aging model. And so everything that we see here on Earth, with probably the exception of diabetes, although we have seen in prolonged uh, zero gravity, people becoming less sensitive to insulin. Hmm. Um, you know, the astronauts generally are healthy people. That's the majority of the population. But when you put them into space, all the aging things that we see, like loss of muscle, loss of um, bone, uh, deconditioning of the heart, change in vision, change in balance, hearing loss, uh, isolation, some of the behavioral things that happen, even as resilient as they are, there are some behavioral issues. Um, you know, lack of appropriate nutrition, although we try to give them as much food as we can, but on the way to Mars, we may not be able to give them fresh foods. Mm. So all of those things, there's, 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 you know, the, so when you combine them, that astronaut is becoming an old person prematurely with the radiation as well. So if we can solve all those problems, uh, we are actually making a difference here for many of the um, aging-related issues here on Earth. Right, it, and really to tease tease those mechanisms apart, because we know that that the the aging is similar, uh, advanced aging is similar in space. It's not the same. I mean, it's not the exact same as somebody that's just aging here on on Earth. But to Dorit's point, there's a lot of endpoints that are very similar, but actually are reversed when they come back to Earth, uh, which is where it's different than how it is on Earth. So if we can tease apart some of those mechanisms and understand, you know, how is it that a lot of these components happen in space, but then are, are uh, 
somehow reversed or, or uh, reduced when they come back to Earth. Can we, can we maybe understand the story about aging to the population a little bit better? Uh, which is which is an exciting question in itself. I'm loving I'm loving the passion that's coming from both of you when it comes to all these things. But what I find fascinating is w your backgrounds are so different. We're talking genetics, we're talking cancer research, and then drug development. But now we're talking about aging. Tell me about the team at Trish and, and what what all the uh, what all the expertise is and how you're getting together to look at some of these problems that you're talking about because it sounds like it's cross disciplinary. Yeah, the the thing is is that you can never you can never cover it all. Uh, oh, yeah. You become really a, a <laughs> jack of all trades, master of none, which is actually a really good thing because if you start to think that you're a, a master of something that you think you know it all. When somebody comes in with a different point of opinion, you know, a different opinion, you're like, oh, no, you dismiss it. So if you allow yourself to sort of say, okay, I know just enough to connect the dots, okay, mm -hmm. and, to, and to ask the right people, if you, if you know enough to know, this is an expert, I'm going to go to them and take in what they have to say. Um, that's when you start to make those real innovations, those real connections, because somebody over here is, is an expert in microfluidics, and somebody over here is a material scientist, and somebody over here is a physiologist. And by taking all those little pieces and putting, in, putting them all in a room and say, talk about this problem, oh. they come up with things, but we're the ones that put them together. So we have such a diverse team. We have uh, somebody at Caltech who's uh, essentially comes from, you know, uh, biomedical engineering. We have somebody at MIT that is a, a brain scientist, essentially. He uses technology to image the brain. Uh, we have an emergency medicine physician that's working closely with Kristen. We have a former NASA biomedical engineer working with Kristen here in Houston. Uh, we have an orthopedic surgeon part-time at UCSF. Uh, my deputy, James Hurry, is, uh, comes from Texas Children's Hospital, and he's done innovation for children in healthcare. Mm. So you pull all these different people together, and you get a real mix of opinions, which is delightful and really fun. It's actually a really unique uh, team, and I, I think that we talk about it all the time. We're very fortunate because... Um, you know, I've been to a lot of places and I've, I've seen a lot of backgrounds and Trish is unique in terms of, as, as Dorit said, we have a lot of different opinions, we have a lot of backgrounds that are different, but we somehow figure out a way to gel and, and move the mission forward. We're all rock stars, our, our communications lead, Rachel is a rock star. Um, we have a genetics person that helps me with solicitation, she's a rock star. We're, we're all really strong in our field, which, which uh, makes it such a unique place to be is, is that we can really gel together and, and move the mission forward. But I also want to speak to not only that, but Dorit said earlier how we're trying to build that space health community. That is crucial for us because, as she said, we are not experts in, in everything that we need to be experts in. So it's really important for us to reach out to people that have never even thought about space research. They have never thought about how their technologies could be useful for NASA or for space health in general because we need them to be our subject matter experts. We need them to come to us and say, hey, have you thought about this? Hey, I know that this tool exists, but have you thought about it using it this way? Uh, so in addition to our, our rock star team, it's that space health community that we really need to continue to grow so that we can really have the subject matter experts and the ideas coming to us um, all the time. So I want to add something to that, which is really important. So. 
there's a lot of brilliant people out in the world. They have a lot of great ideas. The problem for NASA is that they're not focused or they're not reasonable for what NASA needs. In other words, yeah, you can suggest doing MRIs in space, but you know, you have to educate people. We can't take an MRI machine. Uh. Or, hey, let's do an x-ray. Well, we really don't want to introduce more radiation in space. We already have enough radiation. Or, you know, people come up with fantastic ideas, but what's reasonable and what is, the other thing is, is NASA, everything is a trade, right? So if I'm going to choose to take this medical device, that means I can't take this food, or I, I have to take less water, or I have to reduce the habitable volume if I have to include this particular medical device. So NASA is always thinking about what do I absolutely have to have, not what's nice to have. So there's lots of wonderful things that people come up with and tell us about, and they want to take it to space, or they want us to take it to space. And they're lovely, wonderful inventions, but we always have to be thinking about NASA. So our other job, other than reaching out and bringing those technologies in, is educating. Mm. We have to explain Absolutely. to people in layman's terms or, hey, I know you're in love with your technology. You're a researcher and you love your research and we get it. It's important. But it doesn't fit with NASA's need or here's why we need you to work on it differently. So it's part of our job to sort of educate the public. So it's a two-way communication, so we act as the go-between. And I sort of call ourselves our mom-and-pop NASA because we're much more approachable. Like, it's very <laughs> hard to talk, to talk to somebody at NASA to get them to speak to you. Um, we speak in acronyms. You do. It's, it's a whole <laughs> new thing. Uh, but we're much more approachable. Like, Kristen's, you know, we, we have a, a sales force is something we use. It's used in business as a way to... Um, manage leads and Rachel our communication uh, lead put together a community force we call it the orbit and people in there can ask questions where you know you can sort of have like a chat and get access to experts within mm. NASA and us etc this is what you this is when you said community this is what you mean it's not you, you don't want to be a resource you don't want to be a hub where everyone's coming to you you want to make sure you build that community and establish that two-way communication because and, well, and, and educate and, and yeah. for them to have conversations with the community. So with we, each other. we don't need to always be a part of that conversation. We there are examples where there are folks that have technologies that are going on to station soon and they want to reach out to the community and say, hey, what kind of cells or what kind of questions do you have? I've got this technology. Um, partner with me. So I, I also want to see not just a two-way communication between Trish and the, the the rest of the community, but I want to see the community talking amongst themselves. It's already happening. It I get, is. I get notes all the time of people talking. I'm like, it's, what are they it's talking a fantastic about? I have thing no idea see. what they're talking but, about, but they went off. Oh, but yeah. it absolutely, and we've seen it time and time again, is allowing these people to be educated and think in a way that they've never thought before. And it allows them to come up with a better, stronger idea for, for space health research. And that also makes them uh, even a stronger um, candidate for a NASA grant in the future. And so, again, one of our deliverables is bringing people that are new to NASA in and have successful um, grants that, that can go to NASA as well. Yeah, so if people want to join in, anybody can. It's open to everybody. It's called trish.force.com. And uh, force, because we're the force. <laughs> <laughs> 
hoping uh, maybe hoping Disney does like yeah. after me. <laughs> Trishwars.com. Well, well, tell me more about this community. Are we talking universities? Are we talking industry? Everybody. Are we yep. talking? Okay. Yeah, we, yes. we don't we don't exclude anybody. I mean, obviously, we moderate it, make sure there's no crazy people with tin hats, which we do get a few of those. But mm. I want to make sure that I do speak to something else that we deliver to the community. And to NASA too is we run a lot of virtual workshops. We we did. Um, one uh, through Caltech organized for us um, uh, on AI and healthcare. Uh, we did one with MIT Media Lab on um, how to enrich indoor environments to improve behavior health. And we brought in a lot of different speakers and um, companies to talk about. Uh, you know, and even furniture companies are thinking about these things. Oh, wow. We had a we had a, one of the sponsors of the workshop was was um, a furniture company, and they're thinking about how to change indoor environments to improve your performance at work. So you know, ergonomics. you never yeah, you never know. It's not just ergonomics; it's like your mood, like the lighting, the scents, you know, oh, all these things. Yeah. Like when you talk to some of the astronauts, they'll say, you know. It's a whole year with no change in seasons. It's like the same air, the same smell, the same temperature, the same humidity. Monochrome. Yeah, and yeah. it's like very sterile. Mm. So, okay, maybe they could put up with it for a year on the ISS, uh, but on the way to Mars, that's a whole different thing. Yes. So so we have that workshop. Everything's archived. We do a lot of, we call it the Red Risk School. So NASA prioritized, uh, Human Research Program prioritized the risks by color, <laughs> so red, stop, you know, yellow, medium, and then green, we're probably okay to go. So we call it the red risks, which are highest priority, hey, we need to solve these problems before we go to Mars. So we, we put on the red risk school. And so, hmm. you know, for a whole week, uh, and there's one coming up, uh, let's see, Rachel, when is it coming up? In February, we'll, we'll do the next one, but we've also archived the last two years. We've also done it. We have experts speaking either from NASA or the community about the top risks, what are the problems, what are the needs, how people's research can fit in. So that's all archived through our website and also the Trish Force. You can find links to it. Um, and then uh, we did recently a workshop with a local uh, 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 subject matter expert is a young entrepreneur started this company on VR brought in experts from all over the world I mean he had people because this was virtual so you had people from you know the UK Australia Spain um, you know obviously the US I mean just from everywhere talking about how to use VR and what are the what are the latest technologies VR for training hmm. uh, VR for behavior health uh, VR to improve your exercise um, just how to use VR, and and then we had a NASA experts explaining, okay, what are the limitations in the space environment? So it was sort of like a comprehensive thing. So we're trying to provide a lot of that content, um, but I didn't even get to the main thing that we do. That's all like the <laughs> extra stuff. The main thing we do, most of our money is to fund research. So we give a lot oh. of research grants. Um, and they're to, through solicitations, but they're also like, if you just have a great idea, come on in and tell Kristen about it. We have, you know, a, a dashboard where we can look at things um, through, you can find it through our website or you can find it through trishforce.com. Um, and, uh, you know, Kristen, uh, so, so we do solicitations. So they're either to companies or universities and, and we give a lot of money away. We give a lot of money away, millions of dollars to various people. And we have a training program. We have postdoctoral fellows, actually the fellowship, I think, uh, opportunity, the current one closes today. We, um, I think I'll save it for the next one for the, for what we have current opportunities open. But, mm -hmm. um, Kristen, why don't you talk a little bit about the, the, uh, radiation solicitation? 
Sure. So we have uh, just opened a radiation solicitation. So again, my background uh, being at NCATS um, is the, the tissue chips. And you, so you're familiar with that with yeah. your discussion with of Lucy course. Lowe. So it's a, on a previous podcast. Um, and what we want to do, so tissue chips or microphysiological systems, they're not they're not very new anymore. They, you know, they've been around for a while. Lots of publications, pharmaceutical companies are starting to use them. Uh, other other agencies are starting to invest in them. Um, but we want to see how we can use these technologies for again looking at human tissue for the first time, a physiological system using human tissue to to look at space relevant radiation. Uh, so that's that's goal number one: is can we use these as a human analog? Hmm. Uh, and then can we look at multiple tissues of interest or organs of interest th to see what would happen maybe with or connected, um, single or connected. Uh, so that's, that's goal one. And the other goal is countermeasures. And hmm. so there's a lot of effort, and there's always been a lot of effort on, on radiation countermeasures. A lot of people have their favorite uh, pharmaceutical or nutraceutical. Um, and so we're, we're allowing that to be tested as like a proof of concept in the tissue chip as well. But where I really want to, I'm going to say the word trish out. So where <laughs> I want to go bold and beyond <laughs> is that come up with another outside of the box countermeasure. And you know, a lot of people, so right now our, our uh, current portfolio has some, some work on looking at gene editing, huh. uh, looking at, uh, you know, tardigrades. So can we embrace our inner our, our inner tardigrade or water bears, so some of the, the genes that make them radiation resistant. Uh, you know, can we can we understand can we understand that a little bit better? Um, is there any homologs that are within our DNA that we can uh, transiently in, in induce for a short period of time? And I know that can be controversial, but that's kind of where we are sometimes is those provocative questions. Yes, and this is the innovative, groundbreaking technologies that right. you're talking about. You're, exactly. This is what you want to explore. Anyway. It, it makes you feel a little uncomfortable. We've sort of decided <laughs> yes. if, if something makes us feel a little uncomfortable, it's probably, so we're probably in the right yeah, direction. Worth exploring. Yeah. Yeah, let's get a little queasy and we're probably spot on. Uh, so what about different types of materials? What about um, bioelectronics? What about a whole different approach? What about uh, slowing down metabolism and seeing if we can allow the cells time to repair their DNA? Uh, what about saving the stem cell campaign? Can we can we have a batch of stem cells for astronauts that we can reintroduce into into the tissue later to see if we can keep like a fresh, healthy batch of of cells? Uh, these are these are just examples. I, I want people to to come up with other ideas too. But that's sure. where we really want to push the boundaries with these types of technologies, and that's ultimately the goal of this this first solicitation on radiation and tissue chips. I want to talk about uh, just because you know this is as audience we have current currently open solicitations or, or programs. Um, so the other one <laughs> we call it the swap, which <laughs> is uh, our way of helping NASA again uh, take its scientists and put them out in the community so they can learn something new, and then take scientists who are out there and put them into NASA centers so they can learn about NASA's needs and requirements and you know, uh, the oh, yeah. constraints of space flight. So it's sort of an exchange of scientists. So it's, it's, it's formally known as the faculty exchange or the space health swap. So that just went live today. And that's open to civil servants going out and open for scientists who want to spend their summer at a NASA center. And we're going to we're gonna make that happen for them. So space camp for adults. Wow. Yeah, you, you said the main thing you do is uh, you do research grants. But, it's, uh, I mean, we're talking about a whole bunch of other stuff, too. 
Yeah. It sounds like the education part is really important because what you're trying to accomplish is when you get these ideas, you want them to be informed. Yes. So you're not missing out on, well, uh, technically NASA needs this to be smaller. Or, well, you really need to think yeah. about the weight of this thing or you need right. to think about the radiation aspect because they have a ton of radiation. It's so there's a ton of education. It's particularly interesting with industry. So let's oh, talk about industry. So we have an upcoming solicitation in the spring specifically for companies because it's really not fair to companies to put them in the same mix with um, academics who write proposals for a living. I mean, they write grant proposals for a living, and they're very, very good at writing proposals. Companies have a different approach. They generally have a slide deck that they share with an investor. They have a different timeline. They're very, very good at delivering products fairly efficiently, and you know, especially the, the scrappy ones, the startups, they can do it for very little money. Hmm. So that's a great bargain for NASA. We've come across quite a lot of small companies that have delivered things for very little money. Um, and so that's wonderful. But the problem is, is that they they need to be educated on how what they're already doing for their so-called Earth market. We laugh about that. <laughs> the space market. They're like, oh, who's going to buy this? Like, you know, NASA and maybe one other person, maybe Elon Musk. Um, maybe they'll buy four. You know, how's that important for my business model? Well. All the things that, that they're doing for Earth, we're going to make it better for Earth because it's going to be miniaturized, it's going to be cheaper, it's going to mm. be used by non-expert user. And so the, the, high, um, the high dollar uh, in really complicated equipment, we're not really interested in. But all the things that are, the small companies are developing for in the home care, hmm. elderly monitoring, uh, the kiosks that are going to be going up in Walgreens that will do all of your health um, surveillance, the smart mirrors in the bathrooms, all of those technologies and the AI that goes behind that um, is is very much applicable for what we're thinking about for space, the autonomous healthcare model. So, yeah. so it's an education of companies to, to realize that what they're going to do for us is actually down the path of their own earth market. We are not going to distract them. That's what investors are worried about, that they're going to get distracted by this NASA thing over here. Sure. But no, what the NASA thing is, is exactly in line with, with the market that they're going after, which is reducing costs to healthcare. Mm. And what we're going to focus on in this upcoming solicitation is behavior health. And, you know, this is, you know, people, people don't like to talk about it because astronauts are incredibly resilient human beings. I mean, they're screened for this, right? But mm -hmm. nobody has ever been in a tin can for three years <laughs> far away from Earth. Like, we've yeah. done isolation studies, but nowhere near the length and the kind of danger they're going to be under. And so small a volume. And you're going to be with three people that your boss picked out for you. And you're going <laughs> to smell their smell for three years. Yeah. You know, so uh, the behavior aspect is actually something that NASA is worried about. So yeah. what are companies doing on monitoring behavior health and improving behavior health and providing people with tools that they can apply themselves? We all have times of depression. And so what what can we do to mine what's out there to help the astronauts on that, on that yeah. long-duration mission? So what you're looking at is you're looking at, you know, what it takes to have the resilience of an astronaut to live in a tin can for three years far away from home with the same people. No. Take those same applicabilities and s maybe check on, like, or try to come up with ways 
for to improve behavior health or be resilient here on earth is that sort of it it's maybe even the wrong it's track it's not about it's not about what it takes to be resilient we know these people are resilient these sure. astronauts are resilient we know that no even resilient people need cues that something is off hmm. okay and okay say for example I'll, I'll just give you I'll just paint the picture it's always better so say you know an astronaut just starting to feel down maybe the the exercise equipment broke down has been able to exercise is not feeling really well maybe maybe the maybe one of the vitamins went down and now they're they don't have vitamin d anymore or something like that there's something going on right and so that astronaut starts to maybe sleep a little more maybe spend less time with other crewmates maybe smile less maybe use language that's more negative so there are ways to pick up on those things hmm. there and an ai system would maybe inform the commander or the medical the medical officer of the mission, hey, this crew member's a little off, check in on him. So maybe, so it alerts, and then maybe maybe they make sure they get him a vitamin D, maybe they make sure that, you know, they figure out another way to exercise, you know. So so it starts to alert you before it actually becomes a problem, or it can alert the person themselves, hey, you're a little off today. What's going on? Maybe write in your journal, maybe share this, maybe talk to the AI, maybe talk to the, the medical officer, maybe try to call home and, you know, talk to your um, flight surgeon about what might be going on with you. So that's what I'm talking about is to put the tools yeah. in your hand to recognize, but also have a strategy. There's no point to recognize if you can't do anything about it. So yeah. it's all about the countermeasures as well. The countermeasures as well, but it's that technology for identifying, monitoring, and, right. and, and realizing this behavior. <clears throat> and, that's, and that's one aspect, but I'm also very interested in the, the physiological aspect um, because we do know that diet and nutrition and the microbiome can play a role in, in this. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of new research on this gut-brain axis uh, and how what we eat can impact our mood or what's, what's happening with our microbiome that could um, induce inflammation that could also impact our mood. And we don't know what radiation can do to our, our behavioral health or our cognitive function. Uh, so, there, so there's also this physiological uh, underlying that I think is also really interesting for, for Trish to, to pursue and to invest in that addresses cognitive performance and behavioral health. Hmm. So along the lines of, of what we're talking about, we're investigating different examples right now. We're investigating all these different ways that you guys, t tell me about what's going on, what else is going on right now that you're doing at Trish? So, uh, well, there's, we've, we've recently funded uh, something in the category of what we call just-in-time medicine. Uh, so rather than having an entire pharmaceutical kit that you have to take with you, can you make drugs on the fly? Uh, can we can we take with us? Let's just call them ingredients uh, for formulations for the active pharmacole, uh, pharmaceutical ingredient uh, to to say, okay, you know, we don't know what we can face or what we're going to be up against, but let's try to take a kit with us and build these drugs as needed. So we're actually funding a couple of, um, of projects where we've selected a couple of projects that can, can tackle this from a small molecule component. So having the right formulations and pieces where you can build these, these small molecules, like uh, basically kind of in a, in a kit, where you can say, I need this type of small molecule, I need this type of can compound. Can I just jump in and just sure. explain to the, to the listeners, small molecule is a typical drugs that you take by mouth. 
Uh. large molecules in pharma, because Kristen and I both came from pharma, large right. molecules are the antibodies you have to inject or proteins like EPO. So oh. small molecules are things that you generally take by mouth. And right. most or, drugs. Oral medication. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, most most of our, our drugs are small molecules. Okay. Uh, so can we build those on the fly as needed? Uh, and then also going to those those larger, those, that, those types of... Um, drugs that are the biologics of those larger proteins, those larger molecules, can we can we also build those on the fly as well? And we've actually selected a, a, a project that can, or that is suggesting that they can make these, these larger therapeutics, these larger drugs, these biologics, and lettuce. So can you eat your drugs? Um, oh. So that's, that's something that we're trying to uh, explore as well. Um, we're also thinking about stability of, of our drugs. Um, so we have a group that is looking at using silk protein to, to basically have a pouch or a, a case where you can put your drugs in that will protect against some of the hazards like uh, radiation, for example. Hmm. So we're, we're very keen on how we can keep that, that pharmaceutical kit fresh and relevant and safe and effective on our way to Mars and back. Yeah, yeah that's the that's the space application, right? Is like, you know, Degradation. if you buy an over-the-counter medicine, it has an expiration date. You know, you can't have it sitting on the shelf for for three years. So this would be a way to make sure that you can have the correct the medicine you need for correct. the entire duration. It's of a, a Mars red mission. risk. It's what we call the red, red risk. risk. It's, it's called medication. Okay. And it's and like like you just said, most pharmaceutical companies they don't need it to last that long. In fact, they want you to dump it out so you can buy more, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, I just put something in the garbage this morning. You know, it, it expired after a year. Yeah. So on the way to Mars, Kristen, as Kristen said, we need to protect those drugs or make them as needed. I see another benefit too, because if that means you may correct me if I'm wrong, you may have to take less with you, because now you just have ingredients and you put them together as you need them. So you correct. don't need this a bottle of this, a bottle of that. Now you're limiting mass as well. And it's a multi-purpose. So say we went with the the plant route. Uh, the plant so route, we're yeah. going to be growing lettuce anyway. Well, the hope is is that we'll have some fresh foods to be growing. Uh, so can we use plants for multiple purposes? And so for um, nutrition, for um, CO2 uh, scrubbing, for for can we use them to make our drugs and ingest it that way? So trying to come up with clever ways on how we can use the tools that are on the craft uh, for for the needs for the for the crew. So what like. I'm thinking about other applications too. I'm thinking about Earth applications. So, what 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 would be nice on Earth to have you build your own pharma? Yeah. Kit? So, actually, this whole idea started um, at DARPA. So, oh. um, the uh, Jeffrey Ling, who was a former DARPA manager, who's um, a military guy, he was basically deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq. And the biggest problem they had is they didn't have the drugs on site. They like you know simple drugs that you would just take for granted here on Earth in battle in you know where you're in the farthest quarter of the world it was really hard to get drugs it would take like you know two three days to get an antibiotic in and the person died so he was the one that actually initiated what he calls 3d printing of pharmaceuticals and he has he started a company after he left darpa and it's actually i think he's partnered up with some folks at either hopkins or mit i apologize for not knowing but that whole concept of 3d printing is critical because here's the other thing is is in hospitals right now 
um, they, they run out of stock. Certain drugs they run out of. And if, if the manufacturer of generics, for example, in India or in you know, China, Israel, or Canada is behind or there's a shortage, you've got people who are depending on these drugs. You're not able to make them. Mm. So think about it. If you're a hospital administrator and you need to crank out a whole bunch of drugs, you can make them right there. So there's a lot of earth applications for these things as well. Very important, timely earth yes. applications. That's incredible. And those hard-to-reach places, uh, so some yeah. some of the places that don't have access to hospitals or healthcare that that you can maybe get to the get to these communities earlier and quicker uh, to give them their medications. I want people to understand that you know we realize we're not going to be growing a whole lot of plants on that tiny you know craft to Mars. It's the concept, right. and maybe we have a Mars colony, and maybe there we can grow you know not potatoes but lettuce. Or yeah, we also funded a project that. Uh, the tomatoes, space tomatoes that are highly miniaturized plant, big fruit, but they scrub CO2. So talk about helping with the, with the green gas, uh, you know, becoming a green technology. Or Nutrition uh, and for the environment, right, exactly. for the, the contained, confined and it's, environment. It's about the concept. It's about really, you know, learning what we can learn about using functional foods, if you will. Yeah. Wow, this, that was just one example that I, after I asked for example. We have a, a variety. Uh, <laughs> we try to keep our portfolio pretty diverse yeah. uh, in terms of how we address the risks that NASA has. Uh, we, we think about um, cognitive function. We think about radiation. We think about cardiovascular function and just health. We think about the, the visual problems that, that astronauts have. Um, we think about immune. We, there's, there, we have quite a diverse portfolio. Uh, and we think we need it. It's quite humbling because we don't know nearly enough as we should. We know <laughs> yeah. just enough to be dangerous about all these things. <laughs> yeah, a couple other examples, like uh, Kristen was just mentioning the ophthalmic issue. So um, ophthalmy, you know, vision care and vision. making sure that the optic nerve is healthy and the eyeballs are, are healthy. And we see we see this in a lot of the astronauts now, and it's not a new problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we really, re- nobody's ever lost vision as a result. We just don't know over three years what will happen. Um, And so, again, it's that length of time. When they go up for a year on the ISS and they're in zero gravity, they have change in vision, they have swelling of the optic nerve, and they come back to Earth, things get back to normal. We just don't know about three years, you know, up to three years on that Mars mission. We just don't know. Or maybe in combination with the space radiation, which they're not getting a whole, I mean, they're getting some radiation on the ISS right now, but not nearly what they're going to get on deep space. And not the right kinds, too. You're That's talking right, GCRs, right. all these other things. are Yeah, correct. So exactly. combination with that, they may have a problem. So what we've invested in is some ophthalmic technologies, do-it-yourself ophthalmology, okay? So you mm. stick your eyeball into the viewfinder, and that thing will adjust the, vis- the, the uh, prescription for you so that you can see what you need to see, and it'll take a retinal scan of you. Basically, right now, you need to have another person helping you or an expert to help you align your, your pupil and everything. You have to dilate your pupil. So you have to dilate oh, yeah. to get the, the back of the retina. And oh, so it's a do-it-yourself eye exam that yeah. will give you all the information you need. That does not exist today. So guess where the company is going to take it? CVS and Walgreens. So just like now you have those machines, you stick your arm into it and get a blood pressure, you can go in there and do the scan on your eye. Why is this important? There's so many people at risk for losing vision because of diabetic retinopathy. A lot of diabetics, it's it's a silent vision killer. Hmm. You have no idea you have diabetic retinopathy. If your doctor's good, they're going to be sending you to an ophthalmologist every year to make sure you're okay. 
but there are a lot of people with unmanaged or even undiagnosed di diabetes. So what if you go into your Walgreens to pick up a prescription for something or you're in there buying, you know, a, a box of diapers and you go up and you stick your eyeball on this thing, you put in 10 bucks or something like that, and it says, hey, your optic nerve is really swollen and you better go see a doctor. You might lose your vision. So that's going to save a lot of eyeballs. And it's about the technology we're developing for space. Yeah, yeah. But it's... Uh I love the theme is all the same when it comes to um, space flight. It's it's that autonomy. It's that compactness. It's that that level of uh, you know you don't need this gigantic machine and these professionals. That that's an incredible idea that you can take something that you needed to dilate your pupil. You needed these big machine. You needed a professional standing right right in front of you, and you can just put it in like a in your corner store. You, the user interface is going to be key. Uh, we, we need to make sure that anybody can use these types of technologies, that you do not have to be medically trained to understand how to use the, the equipment and what the, the data means when it comes back. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one of our priorities in all of the types of technologies that we consider. So talk about scary. So, so my son's just finishing med school. He's going to be an orthopedic surgeon, right? All right. Yeah. And so when I talk about uh, do-it-yourself medicine, it freaks them out, right? Especially surgery. People talk about surgery in space. So we're going to send a doctor to Mars for sure. Mm -hmm. Maybe it'll probably be a surgeon or an emergency medicine doctor because they, you know, they can do the, the, the more complicated things. Mm -hmm. If somebody breaks something, if somebody has to have an emergency appendectomy, if somebody has a foreign particle, as, you know, in the zero gravity embedded in their, <clears throat> in their uh, airways, what are you going to do? Hmm. What are you going to do? So uh, another project we're kind of excited about is working with a, a game, a medical gaming company. So these hmm. people came from like Lucasfilms and Disney and Pixar. They're developing games for doctors to train them on procedures. So even doctors who learn how to do things get rusty with procedures. And so they basically create visualization tools that doctors could even use on their smartphones. You don't have to have a big station and VR um, headset or anything like that. You can just use it on your smartphone and you could practice while you're sitting at the airport waiting for your flight. You can practice removing a foreign object from your airways. You can practice doing a scoping. You can practice doing a certain complicated ultrasound scan. And they made these really fun. They're gaming people. So they, they you know, doctors are very competitive. So they're competing <laughs> with each other on how quickly they got this done without killing the patient or so they made it ex extremely realistic it's based on mathematics and a physical model of physiology they they used it's it's not just a game for fun it's like based in in medicine and physiology and a lot of doctors advise them so we partnered up with them we we gave them some money we said make this for zero gravity Hmm. What what will this look like in zero gravity? Because fluids behave differently, tissues behave differently, um, organs shift in in uh, zero gravity. Um, you have swelling of tissues. Uh, an object will float. You can't just put down your your you know scope and it'll stay there. It'll actually float away. So you want to simulate that so that when your geologist is having to do a procedure on the doctor who inhaled some object, oh, <laughs> okay, yeah. now you could practice. You can actually go through this training and have it be realistic in zero gravity before you have to do this emergency procedure on the doctor who's supposed to be <laughs> the one that's healthy. Wow. Yeah, I could definitely recognize that application for space, but it also makes me feel pretty good to have doctors just on the ground, regularly fine-tuning their skills and competing with each other. It's got to feel good from a patient perspective mm -hmm. that 
they have that dexterity, that that familiarization mm-hmm. with their with their motions to in case they need to operate on someone. And what I love about this example is that this is, as Dorit said, their background is gaming. Uh, They were not trained scientists. They did not go through the university route. Um, These are just people that had a tool that if we could modify it for space, it's a game changer. And that's what I love about how we think at Trish. Is it, you don't have to be a traditional scientist that went down a traditional path to, to engage with us or for us to invest in you. We just want to see a tool that is gonna be a game changer. Mm-hmm. And that's, this is a great example of how that, how that yeah. came to be. And talk about educating them. I mean, they, they have no idea and so we we brought in astronauts, we brought in flight surgeons, we brought in space physiologists, we brought in people who work at NASA, we brought in people who've been doing this for years mm. together with this group. And together, you know, they're making something that's going to be useful and fun and engaging and relevant for NASA with real science and physiology behind it. That's wonderful. Yeah, I like that when you talk about invo- thinking about new things and new technologies, who would have thought, oh, let's bring a gaming, let's bring oh. some gaming folks on to, to solve this space health funny? problem. Do you want to hear something funny? Yeah. So, so most of these guys are young software engineers or gaming people, right? Yeah. Like, they, you know the type, right? And <laughs> and their families are all like, oh, you're just a gamer. Like, we don't even take you seriously. You don't really have a real job. They're like, no, we're building tools for doctors. <laughs> but as soon as we came in, all of a sudden they became legit. All right. Oh, you're working with NASA. You must be <laughs> legit. <laughs> so we bring legitimacy. <laughs> I love that. I think I think another theme, and I, and I kind of want to end with this: that w- what we're talking about when it comes to space health technologies, and you've 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 met you've had this term a few times, Mars forward. When you're when you're talking about problems for space, it's not just general space flight. You're thinking, you're thinking ahead. You're thinking, man, if we're on Mars and you're gone and you're far away and you don't have the right communication, you know, 20 minute communication delays, and you're going to be there for an extended period of time. We're talking three years. You're, that these are the problems that you're solving. Tell me about like something coming up in the n- near future, maybe on the moon. Uh, you know, where we're definitely looking forward to this Artemis program uh, for for NASA returning humans to the moon. Um, what are we looking forward to that maybe we can apply there? And and that is truly Mars forward. So I'll start and then Kristen can give the specific yeah. example. So that's a great question. So uh, my understanding right now and speaking with NASA and all of our colleagues is that there's so much, so much uh, that's needed to, so many resources and money and effort to put boots on the ground on the surface of the moon in 2024. That I think using the moon as an analog for Mars, which is what we're hoping for, is to learn how to do the Mars things on the moon surface where it's more dangerous than ISS. Oh, mm-hmm. heck yeah, but still close enough to Earth that you can have, you know, uh, some, uh, you could have a medical uh, evacuation if you need to. Within two days, two, three days, you'd be back on Earth. But um, as we understand it, there's just not a lot of capability that's being built right now. And so everything's about getting the boots on the ground and not having a place where we can do all the testing of the Mars forward things. So when NASA's ready for that, we will have the toolbox. We're developing a future toolbox that we can Mm. let them have their pick, whatever you guys need. Uh, Here are the things that we want to test on the moon. And that is forward thinking. But in terms of Artemis, I really, there's no specific things that we're building for Artemis. But Kristen has a great idea of how we're going to use (laughs) Artemis. So I'm going to let her finish with that. 
So I'm already thinking about the next steps for these tissue chips that I mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. So currently we have the, the organs on chip solicitation that's live, and we want to see if it's good a good analog for, for human tissue and looking at countermeasures. But I'm already thinking about the next steps. So a lot of these tissues, uh, they, can, they can survive for up to 28 days. Um, but I'd like to see is that if we can expand the tissue viability and have everything automated so that these tissues can survive and be viable and functional for up to six months, hmm. then I want to launch these guys onto the moon. And I want to be able to have everything automated so that I can just pick up my phone and say, what, what's the cytokine expression in the, in the tissues right now? So can I, can I measure inflammation in the vasculature tissue right now? Um, how's the flow? Are these vasculature tissues being leaky? Um, can I take an image and look at the, the cell structure or the tissue structure? Does it still look okay? And this way, it could be a complete non-invasive way of studying human tissue exposed to GCR and in a way that, we can, that we've never done before. And so this is really my vision for what we can do with these technologies for Trish is to, to, to take this several steps forward and say, let's keep these alive for a long time. That's going to take a lot of ingenuity and engineering to, to say, well, how do we use the media or, or what, uh, the nutrition that's delivered to these tissues? How do we keep that fresh and relevant? Uh, how, do we, how do we automate all of our sensors to, to say what's going on in these tissues? How do we take images? And how is that all going to go back to us uh, on Earth, where we can look at it on our phone, uh, <laughs> but that's exactly the type of mission that that Trish has, and this is this is a vision that I think uh, I get most excited about when I think about these types of technologies and our next steps. Yeah, what I love what I love about everything that you've you've mentioned so far is is you're thinking about all of these areas, and you're truly doing your best to try to be innovative, to think of brand new ways and technologies to solve our problems. But I think what, I've, what I'm really getting from this conversation is just how excited the both of you are about <laughs> all of these incredible technologies. Yeah. It seems like you love your jobs. It's the best job ever. Yeah. And, you know, NASA, NASA is uh, sometimes bogged down with bureaucracy. So to be working with NASA and not to be bogged down by the bureaucracy uh, <laughs> as much as some of my friends are, <laughs> is a joy <laughs> yeah yeah but it's also it's also that i, I feel like we get to play in, in a meaningful mm. way it's it's sci-fi come to life uh and, and sometimes we joke around saying gosh like we need to be inspired let's put on our favorite sci-fi movie and see if we can pick something <laughs> up there because it is it's it's a way for us to use our imagination it's a way for us to look at art and say how can this inspire us and our scientists and our space health community to come up with that next step. So, of course, this is going to be a great job. It's we, we really do have fun. Yeah. Well, Dorit and Kristen, this was so fun. Thank oh, you so much for coming for on. Us. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Thank Gary. you so much. Take care. Yeah, you Thank too. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Really fun conversation we had with Dorit and Kristen today about Trish. 
Notice that uh, some of the solicitations that we mentioned throughout today's episode have already passed at this point, but they're really good examples of what you can expect. So if you go to our show notes at nasa.gov slash podcast, click on Houston, we have a podcast, and then go to this specific uh, episode, you can see some of the links that they mentioned uh, throughout the transcript. And you can find that again at nasa.gov slash podcast, plus the many other podcasts we have throughout NASA. You can find Trish, the link, the link to the website, Trish, uh, right on our homepage of nasa.gov HRP. We tweet out and post on Facebook and post on Instagram using the NASA Johnson Space Center pages. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on January 22nd, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, and NASA's Human Research Program. Thanks again to Dorit Donneville and Kristen Fobb for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to to tell us how we did. Special thanks to Rachel Dempsey for uh, coordinating this effort as well. We'll be back next week.